0: Your Bibles were in Acts chapter 4. And it's been about four weeks since we kicked off this, this series titled How to Change the World. And so let's take a minute and just spend a little time reviewing, right? So in chapter 1, we see Jesus make many post-resurrection appearances for a period of about 40 days, right? It's like Easter happened. And then what? Well, then Jesus comes back, and these these appearances are very convincing because he's actually eating with people. He's speaking with people. At at one time, he appears to over 500 people at once. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins with a Jewish festival known as Pentecost. Now, previously to this, Jesus has been spending a lot of time with his disciples, and he tells them, you're going to be my witnesses. That is, you're going to tell people about me, and here's how the movement's going to go. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to start local. Then it's going to grow to Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria. And then this thing's going to get taken to the uttermost parts of the world. And what's really cool about the book of Acts is that's exactly what you see. It chronicles this steady march of the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Starts local, and then it gets taken worldwide, just as Jesus said. He also said that you're not alone in this because you're going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. So chapter 2 opens the day of Pentecost, this massive Jewish festival. And the apostles are given this supernatural ability. Peter seizes the opportunity. The Spirit of God is moving, just as Jesus said it would, and he preaches this amazing sermon. And 3,000 men respond. Christianity begins to explode, right? It goes from about 120 to over 3,000 in about a two-month period. All of these amazing things are taking place. Things are going really, really well. Jesus also told the apostles that they were going to be able to do supernatural works in his name. Then in chapter 3, it's exactly what you see happening. Peter and John, two of the early apostles, they're making their way up to the temple. On their way, they see this lame beggar. He's been there for years. He's situated in a good location outside of what's known, the beautiful gate, just outside the temple grounds. Everybody passes by him. He's there begging for alms. Peter says, I don't have any gold or silver, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise, walk. And the man immediately, I love it because the text says he jumps. He jumps. And then he follows Peter and John onto the temple grounds. You don't think people are going to notice that? Everybody's like, it's him. Check it out. And it's like he won't leave Peter and John's side and for good reason because it was the power of God on display through them that gave this man the ability to use his legs again. And buzz starts to spread. People are talking. Things are going really well. Peter sees another wave being created by the Spirit of God, and so he steps up, he preaches another really bold sermon, and the text tells us that 2,000 more are at it. So now Christianity has gone from, again, about 100 to 5,000 in about two months. It's an amazing time. Then you get to chapter 4, and all of a sudden, the brakes are being pumped. It's the first time that opposition begins to set in. And it comes fast and furious. And it comes from what would seemingly be an unlikely group. You would think opposition would come from the outside, but instead it comes from some of the most religious people on the planet at that time, a very religious group known as the Sadducees. They oppose Peter, John, the others. In fact, eventually this is the same group that is going to arrest and imprison these men. Now, this is really not to be unexpected by the disciples because Jesus forewarned them. For example, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, and by the way, there will be some pushback. This is what he's about to say. The world is not going to like you. And by the way, the same is true today. How does that work? Well, let's just say this: sometimes Christians can be like pit bulls on the end of a chain. You know what I'm saying? Always barking. You know what I'm saying? This is like that beast where you're just like, okay, okay. I'm not sure if that's the reason why we should be hated. That attitude may needs to be checked. But there is a sense that as a Christian, you will stand for many things that the world stands against. You will stand for those things. You will stand against the things that the world stands for. And if you are preaching the gospel, the message of Jesus, and you're telling people, look, you were born into a dysfunctional relationship with your creator God, you're going to have a lot of people go, excuse me, no. No, I don't like the sound of that. People, none of us likes to admit there might be something wrong with us. So the gospel in that sense is very offensive. So the world is going to push back. The world is going to hate you at times. Jesus says, but remember this, hated me first. So if you belong to the world, it will love you as it loves its own. It's interesting because in our culture today, the love of the world is actually turning out to eat itself. There is no safe place in the world now. Isn't that interesting? So even if you're tempted to to be loved by the world, be forewarned. You're going to be swallowed up by it because the world eats its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's so great. And that is why the world hates you. Now, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, here's the deal. Don't worry about being hated. Um, You're actually going to get some help. He says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities. Now remember, these guys are simple fishermen, okay? Blue collar, uneducated. And now they're being told, you're going to be brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The power behind the growth, the movement of the Christian church, same as true today, is the Holy Spirit. The most misidentified, misrepresented, misunderstood member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. But yet as you read to the book of Acts, that's where the power comes from. He gets very specific in Luke chapter 21. How would you like to hear all this? But before all this, they will lay hands on you, and they will persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. So now now the guys are being told, here's your destination. Ultimately, you're going to wind up in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all because of me and my name, Jesus says. This will result in your being witness to them. Persecution will give rise to opportunity. If you take it, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. It's like, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? Don't worry about that. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So these are really sobering words, but they're also very comforting. So up until this point, the church has been in favor with all the people. That's what the text actually says. Not so much anymore. It's going to change. And here's the reason why. Peter has been teaching on the temple grounds. There's a group known as the Sadducees, and they were, how can I explain it? They, they, um, they owned the temple grounds, okay? It's like the worship at the temple went from God to the Sadducees, these religious elite to everybody else. And these guys, they came from wealthy ruling class, very high positions. They dressed in very fancy, long robes. You could spot these guys a mile away and they loved their positions of privilege. And every once in a while when Jesus encountered them, he just kind of poked their finger at them. And he'd be like, man, if you look inside yourself, there's a lot of self-righteousness. There's a lot of trying to earn your way to God. Oh, and they hated Jesus for this. Ultimately, these were the guys that had Jesus delivered up to be crucified. And now they're hearing the name of Jesus again on their own turf. They're out of their minds. Acts chapter one, verse four. And as they, that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people. Now remember, this is shortly after this miraculous healing occurs. The priests and the captain of the temple, the temple actually had its own security force. And the Sadducees they came upon them, greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now they shared a lot of things about Jesus, but it's interesting. Luke is very specific in in telling us it's it's this part of the message that they really don't like. They really find annoying. They're talking about this resurrection from the dead. More on that in a second. And so they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day for was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men, check this out, came to about 5,000. So now there's a couple thousand more men. They're going to go home. They're going to tell their wives, their kids, their families. So the church is really, again, beginning to explode. This grabs the attention of the religious elite, the upper class, the ones that had all the power. The text says they were greatly annoyed. That that also that can also be translated as uh, in this way, extremely angry. Why? Because they didn't have the right to be teaching people so temple grounds. That's our territory, not yours. Secondly, understand that these guys again. These are simple fishermen. Simple fishermen. They, they're in this, like the, the bottom rungs of society, commoners. These guys are out of their mind that as they're teaching, healing, performing miracles, people are drawn to them. They're telling them about Jesus, specifically the resurrection of the dead, and they're like, this has to stop. They don't like the theology. Specifically, here's why. The Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. Peter understands this and he will actually use this in a very interesting way to make a defense of himself. The two religious ruling classes were made up of the Sadducees and then another group known as the Pharisees. So here's what's interesting. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. That's why they were so annoyed when they kept hearing Peter talk about, oh, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. That resurrection is made possible by Jesus. And it's is like, that's bad theology. But then this other group that also ruled at the time, they were known as the Pharisees. They did believe in resurrection. And they didn't, they were always having this conversation amongst each other, right? In fact, a lot of times they were at odds with each other over this one issue. So, When Peter has to make a defense for himself in Acts chapter 23, uh, or when Paul makes a defense for himself in Acts chapter 23, he actually plays it like this. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul is taken before this council now for what he's done in the name of Jesus. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. And that's what we know. The text tells us that Paul was this brilliant guy. He was an understudy to the master teacher Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. They were pitted against the Sadducees. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. So he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In other words, Paul says, hey, I'm just talking about the resurrection of the dead. And I I was a Pharisee. And when he said this, look at a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So you understand now, this is the context. The thing that they're taking issue with is is Peter's theology when he's on the temple grounds, and he's telling people there will be a resurrection. The Sadducees are going, no, 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 that's heresy, that's heresy, we got to shut him up. The dead will rise in the name of Jesus. That's what Peter's been saying. And then they keep hearing this name, Jesus, again and again. Here's what you cannot miss at this point. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, others will be raised from the dead. And that is the cornerstone. That is the foundational piece of the apostles in their early preaching. Now, this had staggering implications to the Sadducees because what they're hearing is that the man who they delivered up to be crucified, Jesus, is the man who can bring them eternal life. Now they got a big problem on their hands. By the way, uh, at this point, and I've said this a number of times, if you want further proof that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, come back from the dead, this is the moment. The Gospels are very specific in their account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We read details about the tomb being guarded by soldiers. Why do you think that is? It's because men like the Sadducees understood Jesus to say, oh, I'm going to come back from the dead. In other words, y'all don't believe in resurrection, but I'm going to prove you wrong myself. So they placed guards in front of the tomb. They sealed it up. Right? Under penalty of law unless you messed with it. Why? Because on day what? Four, you roll that stone away, you produce Jesus' corpse, and the lie is over. The joke is done. It's like just, this is what people do today. They kind of pat Christians on the head and go, oh, you naive group of people. You actually believe that someone came back from the dead. See, back in the day, all the Sadducees would have had to do is produce that body, but they couldn't. They couldn't do it. So I can just see the temple guard now pushing their way through the crowd, and they seize Peter, and they seize John, and they're arrested. You would think that the crowd would start to turn, but they don't. Another couple thousand people respond. Christianity grows to 5,000. So here's an important point I don't want us to miss. There will always be opposition to the message of Jesus. You understand that, right? There will always be opposition to the gospel. But that does not and should not hinder evangelism when the gospel of Jesus Christ is boldly proclaimed. There will always be pushback to the gospel because in some ways it is offensive because you're telling people, like I said, you're born into a dysfunctional relationship with your creator, God. The dysfunction is not on God, it's with you. But that opposition does not and should not hinder evangelism when that message is preached boldly. I'll give you an example from my own life. I was officiating a funeral for a young man that had taken his own life. And this was in a setting where there were probably I would say at least five, maybe five, seven hundred people were gathered together in this church. And it was mostly high school students and college students. And I was explaining the truths of the scripture that we're all born into a broken and damaged and dysfunctional world, and we actually create that because of our misguided actions and You know, that doesn't please the God that created us. But the beautiful thing is that God wanted to make all that right. You know, God has to deal with all these wrongs. He can't turn a blind eye to it. And so the requirement, the payment is actually death. That's how serious God takes things. And if you think it through, that's actually pretty fair because why is the world so jacked up? It's because all the wrongs that people commit, including you and me, people ask the question, well, why doesn't God just get rid of all evil in the world? Because it would be the end of you. And me. (sighs) But God sent Jesus to take all of that on himself. No sooner did I finish making that statement, and this young man stands up, and he says, this is bleep. He shouts it out in front of everybody. Stands right up. This is. And he walks out. And I acted like it never even happened. I kept right on going. And people got saved that day. See, there will will always be some opposition to the gospel. Now, I actually think, in many ways, we are living in the golden age of gospel opportunity. Because here's what I see happening in culture right now, Western culture, especially here in the States. There are no safe places anymore. There are no safe places. There aren't hardly any safe conversations anymore. I don't see that trajectory changing much. People are looking for safe spaces. That's why the church must be the safest place in the world. Right? The church must be the safest place in the world. And when the church becomes the safest place in the world, you're gonna see the world start to take notice and be like, Okay, I'm going to take shelter there. I want to take some shelter there. Because I'm taking it all from the outside, but I need to find a place where I can get some shelter. So in many ways, this is the golden age of gospel opportunity. That's why I I love the study in the book of Acts, because not only does it remind us of who we are, but it reminds us of what we're called to do. So Jesus was right when he talked to his disciples about being persecuted, it's now happening for them. They're being asked to give an account for their preaching, Peter and John, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And now Luke is a physician. He's very precise in what he records. And so these names are actually important. I'll tell you why in a second. It's rare. He doesn't often name names, but he does here for for, for a reason. He says that, that, that Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. These guys are all present. All who are of the high priestly family. These are the most influential men in Jewish life in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, Now, by what power and by what name did you heal this man? As it turns out, these men, the men that are named are the very same men who, just a couple months earlier, were the ones who had Jesus arrested and delivered up to be crucified. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You see what's happening? Luke says, some accountability here, gentlemen. You were the ones who demanded Jesus be arrested and crucified. Now guess what? His followers are saying his name and people are listening, and you're starting to feel it. Now, Jesus loves everybody. I see this as the love of God, right? Everybody deserves a second, third chance, right? And it is for these men. These are the most powerful men, the Jews, in all of Israel. They don't consume themselves with small matters. This preaching of Jesus has to be dealt with. These men have tremendous authority and they are feared by everybody. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man. He's been blind since birth. And nobody wants to talk about it because they're afraid of guys like this. Because these guys were the ones who said, listen, if anybody talks about Jesus, especially anybody says that Jesus is from God, they are banished from the synagogue. Now, as a good God-fearing Jew, that's the last thing you want in your life. So you see Jesus healing a man who's been blind since birth, and you don't talk about it. Because why? Your fear of man is greater than your fear of God. Yeah, but you've just seen God work supernaturally. Why are you keeping your mouth shut? Human fear, I mean, fear is the greatest motivator there is. That's why more than any other command in the Bible is what? Do not fear. You you hear, do not fear more than love. Give, serve. No, do not fear. Fear will keep you from stepping into that place where God will use you to do all of those things. And that's what's happening right here. They even come to the guy's parents and they're like, hey, who, who, who gave this guy his sight? And mom and dad are like, I don't know. All we know is that he was born blind and now he can see. But you know what? He's old enough to speak for himself. You go ask him. You know, it's like, you go, you go ask him. And the text says that they did that for fear of guys like this. They got to say who's in and who's out. Had great power. Nobody challenged them. But you got to love it. Peter and John know that the real power is in the name of Jesus. Rather than cower in fear, they're about to speak with boldness. And so they get asked, by what power? Now, the response, let me just read it. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said he would be, said to them, "Now remember, I just you know just to be in the scene, such high drama. Again, this is a a, to, to the Sadducees, a low life, smells like fish, blue collar, dirt under the fingernails, poorly dressed fisherman. And this is what's coming out of his mouth: rulers of the people and elders." This Jesus is the stone. There's some beautiful alliteration here. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You understand how this works? When the foundation of a building was being laid, the first piece was the cornerstone. Once the cornerstone was set, then the building's foundation could be built. But the position of that cornerstone had to be precise. The shape, the cut had to be perfect. And there's only one cornerstone. And once you drop it down, everything else is built upon it. So what he's saying is, the foundation of your life, the foundation of your faith, that cornerstone, you missed it. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter could have stopped and said, oh, you know, you're asking for the name. Okay, it's in the name of Jesus. But he presses it, doesn't he? He says, it's Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised. And then this crescendo to reject Jesus is to reject God's only means of salvation. This stung, because the Sadducees believe that they could earn their way to God. In fact, at one point Jesus says, "For all of those who think you can earn your way to God, your goodness has to surpass those of the religious elite. And all they do is good inwardly. They're self-righteous. Outwardly, they do a lot of good acts. Why is that? To feed their pride." and their ego, and it's all a show. You have to surpass them if you want to get to heaven on your deeds. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's impossible. It can't be done. You have to have Jesus. Today, it is very, very popular to believe that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in your belief. Sincerity and feelings rule our culture, right? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Look... Common sense tells us that you can be sincere and wrong. And we're not all saying the same thing. Simple things. The law of non-contradiction tells us we can't all be right. Either salvation is in the name of Jesus or it's in the name of Muhammad. It can't be both. Either it's in the name of Jesus or Buddha or Confucius or Gandhi or how about this, your identity, your politics, it's not salvation in the name of social justice it is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ I love it just hammering this, hammering this bell they just keep ringing it out that's why they're being asked in what name, not what cause not what agenda, not what ideology, who? Jesus put this out there himself, right? In the garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way to save mankind from themselves? If there is, let's do that. And yet Jesus would go to the cross. So imagine you're Sadducees and you're you're hearing the only way to God is through Jesus. Um, You've crucified him. Um, How is this going to impact you? Well, there's something about these men Verse 13, now when they, that's the Sadducees, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, look at this, that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. It's like, we're hearing this coming from these guys? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, right? They start talking, saying, um, what are we going to do about this? See, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. Everybody's talking about it. All Jerusalem is talking about it, and we can't deny it. It's, it's really interesting, because if, if you hear this from people today. People will say, if, if only God would just do... A really big miracle in the presence of people then then more people would believe right if only God would just do this grand miracle I think I said it a couple of weeks ago the greatest miracle of all is that God the author sustainer creator of all life that God would become a man that God would take on flesh and make himself killable. That, my friends, is the greatest miracle of all. And you're like, yeah, but I want more. Okay, now you're just being unreasonable. Okay, really, honestly, now you're just being unreasonable. You want more than that? It doesn't get any bigger than that. So you think Peter and John are gonna be intimidated? Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, they say, let us warn these guys to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That is good. In other words, he takes it to the religious elite and he says, hey, you tell us, religious guys, should we listen to men or God? How are you going to answer that one? So. I love this text because there's something here for everybody. Um, You know, perhaps you're listening and you've experienced some pushback for your faith. Maybe you've experienced some some loss, maybe even some relational loss. As you've come forward in love and compassion, there's been some alienation in your life. I'm sorry. And you're in good company. I get it. Maybe you're just sitting in the boat, enjoying the cruise around the lake, just gently rowing, enjoying the scenery, catching a few fish, pulling them in. You're on cruise control. Um, You're never really stepping outside of that comfort zone. Your boat has never, never been rocked. There's no turbulence. Uh, Can I encourage you? Might be time for you to step out of the boat I want to say take some risks but that's the wrong way to say it because when you put your life in the hands of god there is no risk the risk is not putting your life in the hands of god we were saved for a purpose as we continue to work through the book of acts we're reminded that purpose doesn't involve selfishly holding on to what we have we share with others trusting in the sovereignty of god through the power of the holy spirit And it's all done with tremendous boldness. And I personally think that perhaps today, more than any other time since I've been alive, that the boldness, Christian boldness, right? Christian boldness. When that truth is set before those who don't yet know Jesus and who are loving the world, being eaten by the world, it resonates within them. I can't tell you how many times I have people, I've had people circle back to me and they'll tell me, you know, when you said this, I hated you for it. When you told me that the Bible tells me this, you know, I really, I, I didn't like you for that. But as much as I didn't like you, if I'm going to speak honestly, what you said resonated deep within me because I know it was true. I knew it was true. Even though I didn't want to accept it at the time, I knew it was true. And lastly, you know, we're reminded that it's all about about Jesus. Salvation is found only in him, not in popular culture, not in ourselves, not in popular hashtags, not in our social media identities. All of that stuff, actually, those things can be false messiahs. They're functional saviors that we run to to try to get what we think we need out of them. And even then, we end up getting eaten by what we think is going to love us. A lot of talk these days, guys, a lot of talk about how to change the world, but there's only one way to change it for good. Become bold. Become bold. So you have somebody in your life that needs to hear what Jesus has to offer. Honestly now, what is holding you back? What is the fear? So the Bible speaks to our time in every way because we have these examples of people who have gone before us. And we are here because of their lives, their witness, not just what they say, but how they say it in total confidence. So my prayer this week is that we would understand if we are going to change the world, it's going to be because we do speak the truth of Jesus. So we need to pray. Father, God, that same spirit that worked 2,000 years ago is the same spirit that's working today. Father, would you create a boldness within, illuminate within this local body? Just just these little sparks, will you fan those into flame? Because the world needs rescuing and you've given us the incredible dignity and honor to be part of that rescue plan. That's amazing, God, thank you for that. I pray that we would step into it. Father, give us the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, in the name of the one, as always, that we wanna make famous for who he is, for what he's done in our lives. That name is Jesus, he is the Christ, the Messiah. And it's in his name that we pray, and God's people said, amen.